We've been going through Hosea, which has as its theme uh, the faithfulness of God in the face of unfaithful people. Uh, and we've been seeing this illustrated through the very deeply personal account of uh, an unhappy and unfortunate marital relationship between two parties, Hosea, the faithful husband, and Gomer, the unfaithful wife. A poignant story, unusual in many respects, uh, designed to illustrate the faithfulness of God. And so Hosea pursued his unfaithful bride in spite of her serial adulteries. So I have bad news for you. That story was given to us in the first three chapters of Hosea. We're going to begin chapter four uh, tonight. And if you're like me, you want to know how things worked out in that uh, oppressive, difficult, uh, painful marital situation. Did Gomer ever get it together? Did she ever repent? Did she ever change her ways? Did the marriage last? What happened with the children born as a result of that relationship? How did they grow? What happened? I'm afraid from this point on, almost nothing more in Hosea is said about the particular relationship between those principal characters, Hosea and Gomer. Once again, I'm disappointed. I want to know. And so I've asked in my head, uh, why did God leave us hanging? And I've come up with this and it sat as an answer and it satisfies me, but please don't accept it if it doesn't satisfy you. Uh, it occurred to me that the reason why we don't know any more about the outcome of that marriage between Hosea and Gomer is that this book is not about Hosea and Gomer. Uh, their uh, marriage was simply meant to illustrate uh, God's partnership with his betrothed, his covenant partner, his very unfaithful covenant partner, Israel. So in a sense, uh, Hosea and Gomer were just used by God to illustrate in a more graphic, receivable way the extent to which he is willing to persist in being faithful to ones such as us, namely Israel. And then I thought further, yeah, but wait, this book isn't really even about Israel. It's really about the character of God, the never-ending, a persistent character of God. As he was, so he is, and evermore shall be. As uh, Hosea was towards Gomer, illustrates how uh, God was towards Israel, which illustrates how God is towards all who call upon his name. At our worst and most unfaithful moments, he remains faithful. And he has set up the very poignant illustration of a marriage, first to illustrate his marriage with Israel, his unfaithful lover, and then to show us through it what he's like. As he was with Israel, so too he is with you and I. Uh, folks, blessed assurance, uh, Jesus is mine, even when at times 
I've turned my back on him. Having once been born anew, it becomes an irreversible thing, kind of like a covenant relationship, like unto marriage, in which God will never leave us or forsake us. So now, beginning in chapter 4, we're going to see some distasteful stuff. But we have to look at it because it's scripture. And all scripture, even the distasteful aspects of it, is inspired by God and meant for our profit. Why do I say distasteful? Well, because we're going to see now a declaration and manifestation of God's severe wrath upon his unfaithful partner, namely Israel. So let's pick up uh, the action here in Hosea. Look what it says. Listen. Uh, to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. Uh, you know what's happening? Uh, Israel is being summoned as if to a courtroom situation. Hear ye, hear ye, court is now in session. And the judge is none other than God himself. The accused is summoned to show up and make a defense. In this case, it's Israel. Do this, says God, because there is no faithfulness. That word also could be translated truth. Or kindness, that word could be translated mercy, or knowledge of God in the land. So God is summoning the Israelites to court. It's time now to give account. The accusation specifically is the absence of three commodities, truth, mercy, and the knowledge of God in the land, in the nation. Why these three? Because one affects the other. They're linked together. For instance, it's truth that brings us into the personal knowledge of God. You cannot know of this God in the absence of truth. And the knowledge of God is what produces, ideally, mercy towards others. And so because Israel lacked fundamentally the knowledge of God, therefore they had no Moral compass. If you remove God from the equation of life, he who is the repository of moral, ethical rightness and wrongness, if you remove him from the equation of life, then one person's truth has as much validity as another's. In other words, everyone can do what seems right in his own eyes. I think this is as much modern-day America as it surely was ancient Israel. That's the situation we have today when God is given a back seat. Do what you want to do. There's no such thing as absolute objective truth. What's true for you is true for you, but not for me. That's what happens in the absence of the knowledge of God. Which leads me to conclude America's greatest need is the knowledge of God. Uh, we have political turmoil, in my opinion. But I don't think America's greatest need is in the political realm, as important though it is. 
I think America's greatest need is not political, it's spiritual. We're seeing the absence of the knowledge of God in the land. Therefore, it seems to me, you and I ought to see America, which we love, as a mission field more than anything else. I'm not sure it's the city on the hill, uh, the light to the nations, perhaps we have thought it to be. I think it's a sinful nation like every other nation on earth. And therefore, though we're loyal to this country and are privileged to be citizens of it, I'm not recommending anything else, still, let's not miss the point. Our main responsibility to this nation we love is to look upon it as a mission field. Our mission being not to convert people with regard to their political or other views. That comes when people come to know God in a personal way. Therefore, could I suggest to you a means by which we could be more actively engaged in bringing the knowledge of God to our fellow Americans. I've tried to conform it to something I call 40 words. I think it goes like this. Let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It was when I realized that God was willing to forgive all my sins through the death of his son Jesus on the cross in my place. Now, I went through that fairly slowly, and I bet I finished it in a minute or so. I did this on purpose because I desperately needed a way to start a conversation about the Lord Jesus with people I come in contact with. I found my biggest problem is how could I engage someone in conversation about the knowledge of God? So I... Uh, came up with this method for me to start a conversation and steer it in this direction. And I've succeeded in doing it even with the busiest of people, a UPS delivery person, a pizza delivery person. Um, I go to a barbershop. Uh, I won't tell you where because you'll probably think based on this, boy, I don't want to go to that place. But I go there because it's cheap. And, you know, you get what you pay for. And as they say, the only difference between a good haircut and a bad haircut is about two weeks. So I, I go for this. And um, while I'm in the chair, I, I, I try to take the opportunity to share with every wonderful uh, lady who's snapping my away. And uh, I said... Uh, 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 the ladies will say, how are you doing today? And I'll say, could I tell you something? Um, sometimes not too good because life is getting to be so challenging and difficult and filled with so many uncertainties. But then I say, but let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It's when I realized and I go through this. And then I simply say, what do you think? That's it. Sometimes the answer is, I haven't thought about it. And then I hope God gives me wisdom enough to know how to respond. Sometimes I say, why haven't you? Eternity is important. What's inevitable is that all of us will die. Though you are of a different ethnicity than I am, this lady was, 
you're of a different gender and age than I am. What we have in common is that we'll all die. Are you ready? So we could talk. Sometimes a person will say, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about, for I too am a Christian. I will say, I'm so happy to hear this. Do you mind me asking, what does that mean to you? Why do I say that? Because sometimes people are a little confused about what it is to be a Christian. Sometimes they attribute it merely to church membership. But um, just going to church doesn't make you a Christian, does it? We Jews, uh, sometimes I tell Jewish people, just because you're born in a bakery, it doesn't make you a bagel. <laughs> just because you go to a Baptist church, or whatever church doesn't make you a believer necessarily. So based on the response, can you see how conversation ensues? One time a lady told me, I don't know, I have lots of questions. And there wasn't a whole lot of time to speak of them. So I left and knew I'm going to go back for another haircut eventually. And I brought to her a book, a little paperback book that I thought maybe would address some of her uh, questions and that would be helpful. I brought it back to her and I said, based upon what you said last time, I got this. I think it might be helpful. Would you be willing to read it? And maybe the next time I'm here, maybe we could talk about it. So can you see how uh, just a little entree into the conversation can keep things going? Now, I'm belaboring the point because... Those 40 words aren't magical by no means. Perhaps you have another approach, but get an approach. That's my point. Your primary purpose is to be an ambassador for Christ. You represent not a political party. You do not represent a denomination. You do not represent a particular ethnicity. You do not represent a particular moral persuasion. Primarily, you represent Jesus. Because when someone embraces him by faith, uh, everything else is more likely to fall in line. So this is our primary mission in a world which, like ancient Israel, is increasingly devoid of a personal knowledge of Almighty God. Uh, how can they believe unless they hear? How will they hear if someone doesn't go to them? That's why I say, folks, America's a mission field and we is the missionaries. So let's make this our task. If you want these 40 words in print, <laughs> just shoot me an email and I'll send it to you. I'm glad to send it to you. Well, since the Israelites had forsaken God, there was no mercy in their society. Instead, sin and crime were rampant. And so we read in verse 2, there's swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. In other words, without the knowledge of God, people began to live without boundaries. People began to make their own rules, answer to no one. Each person is who mattered, nobody else. People only restrained themselves if they chose to. Each person's universe revolved around himself or herself. And the ultimate result is what we read in the last phrase, bloodshed follows bloodshed. What does that mean? There was an incident of blood being shed, and before you had a chance even to process it and reflect on it, it gave way to another incident of bloodshed. My goodness, that's the news in America. 
you cannot barely get up and read the news without coming upon another shooting, another murder. And now they're mass shooting and mass murders because we're becoming desensitized to it. It's almost an expectation that every day, well, bloodshed is going to be hot on the heels of more bloodshed. What accounts for it? The same thing that accounted for it in Hosea's day, the absence of the knowledge of God. Therefore, says verse 3, uh, the land, get this, therefore the land, the environment mourns. And everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky, and also the fish of the sea disappear. What a profound insight. You know what this is saying? Because of the increasing godlessness of that society, because of the dramatic absence of the knowledge of God, the natural world was affected. Because of the spiritual impoverishment of people, nature was injured. The land, the text says, mourns. The land literally dries up. That's what the Hebrew phrase means. The land dries up. It became environmentally less productive. It was less fertile. And you say, what in the world is connection? The connection. I, I have every right to sin privately and do my own thing. Uh, for you to suggest it has ramifications beyond the darkness I'm in is ridiculous. No, no, but this is saying that very thing. One of the reasons why God hates sin is because of its ramifications, even for the environment. Do you mind me saying uh, this? Uh, I find those sometimes, sometimes, at the forefront of the environmental movement. Sometimes those who are most zealous and passionately involved in sustaining the environment, those who are most committed to respecting, protecting, and sustaining Mother Earth failed to see that the pollution of Mother Earth is due to their rejection of Father God. It has nothing to do with us using the wrong light bulbs or owning uh, uh, vehicles that are not fuel efficient or flushing the toilet bowl one too many times. That has nothing to do with it, folks. That's a misdiagnosis of the problem. External environmental pollution is a result of internal pollution. Corruption, effect on the inside, even affects every other element in nature. The beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, also the fish of the sea disappear. <clears throat> you want to clean up the, the environment? Clean up your own act. Clean up your own act. No. Let Jesus be the cleansing agent. Know God. Let him inhabit you. Let him uh, take possession of you. And the environment will be set free. In fact, doesn't it say in Romans, the anxious longing of creation is for the revealing one day of the sons and daughters of Almighty God. Can you see the connection between our spiritual posture and the effect even on the natural world? 
The text goes on in verse 4 to say, Yet let no one find fault, and let none offer reproof. Why not? Well, because your people are like those who contend with the priest. The priest was the symbol of God's law. The priest was the agent of governance. The priest represented what's right, what's wrong from Almighty God. If people in the day contended even with the priest, you know what God says at a certain point? At this point in ancient Israel, he says, don't even find fault. Don't even contend with them. Don't even try to straighten them out. Since everyone has rejected the rule of law, God's law, since everyone is intent on doing his own thing, there is no point in one person seeking to correct another because that one who's rejected the law is essentially going to say, what are you talking about? Absolute wrongs and rights. This thing you say is a moral evil is simply my Free choice. If you choose to choose otherwise with regard to that moral issue, abortion, for instance, go ahead. But for you to label me as someone operating contrary to some imaginary God with some imaginary set of rules and absolutes, what are you talking about? There is no law that applies to everyone there are no absolutes. Everything is situational and subjective. That was true in ancient Israel, and good night is it ever true, increasingly, in modern-day America. I think it is. So, uh, it goes on to say, verse 5, you'll stumble by day. That's understandable, uh, maybe, uh, to stumble from time to time. And the prophet also will stumble with you by night. Good night. It's bad enough to, to stumble by night. But when you're stumbling in the day, that means you're really in trouble. And here the priests, the prophets, who should have been representative and spokesmen of God's word, are stumbling along with the people. They're not even setting the people straight. And today you have pulpiteers. <laughs> yeah who never speak about human sin and judgment to come and find discussion about the impending wrath of God to be so sufficiently unpopular and distasteful that it's never brought up. Sometimes you hear preaching that simply has to do with relational stuff and how to succeed with your finances and all the rest. Who cares? That has nothing to do with the fundamental issue, and that is the prophet also will stumble with you by night, and I'll destroy your mother. Now, this is a throwback to the relationship with Hosea and Gomer, her birth, who birthed children. It's kind of a reference to the children born through prostitution by Gomer. It's as if God is saying to them, I'm going to destroy your mother, but by extension, he's talking about Israel. Because Israel rejected the knowledge of God, God is going to judge Israel quite severely. And so it says in verse 6, my people are destroyed. Here's God's diagnosis for lack of knowledge. Not lack of education. 
in American society, we think the solution to problems is education. Do you know we're the most well-educated society in the history of humankind? There's knowledge at our fingertips electronically and all the rest. Education or the lack thereof is not the right, right diagnosis of our problem. There are some extremely well-educated people with multiple degrees who are uh, sinfully moronic, sinfully foolish, even going so far as to deny the very existence of God. Apparently, formal education doesn't solve the problem because the problem is not lack of information. It's lack of experiential knowledge of God. But wait, you mean to tell me Israel didn't know God? Would you say Israel didn't have the word of God? She did. She knew God. She knew the word of God. Well, she didn't know God. She knew of God. She didn't have a transformative, personal, covenant relationship with God. No. She was informed by, but not transformed. She took the word of God. And through mechanical rote repetition of it, missed its power. She missed, as Paul said, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Messiah. She missed the forest for the trees. Welcome to modern day America. So the text goes on to say, the more they multiplied, in this case priests, the more they sinned against me. Well, I'll change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward their iniquity. In some way, the priests in the day were profiting from the people's sin. Uh, here, we surmise might have been how that happened. As Israel brought, brought sacrifices to pagan temples, uh, the priests got a share of it. <laughs> So they not only did not confront Israel for her sin, they encouraged it because they got a payoff from it. And it will be, says God in verse 9, it will be like people like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. Both groups were sinning, priests and people. Therefore, God would punish them both. They will eat but not have enough. Oh. What a horrific place to be. It's not that there isn't plenty, but what's plentiful doesn't satisfy. They'll eat. There's food, not famine. This is even worse than famine. If there's famine, you know why you're hungry. But if there's a plentiful supply of food and you're still unsatisfied, what do you make of it? It's a curse. Welcome to modern day America. A land of plentiful supply. And yet people seem to be increasingly unsatisfied. The capacity to be satisfied, don't you see, is a gift from God. If we remove God from the picture, you can't even take pleasure in what you have. They'll, they'll play the harlot but not increase because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. Harlotry, it says in verse 11... Wine and new wine take away the understanding. Now, you may have 
I'm sure we do have different opinions here about alcohol, and uh, that's a subject maybe for another night, but we must all, I'm sure, agree um, that uh, wine in excess has the same effect as harlotry does. You, you lose your capacity to be reasonable. Uh, 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 the one who makes use of a harlot is willing to risk his uh, reputation, his livelihood, his family, and all the rest. He, he, drunken with uh, uh, illicit passion, and uh, alcohol in excess can have the same uh, uh, effect. That's what God is accusing ancient Israel of. And in verse 12, my people consult their wooden idol. Does this make sense to you? A wooden idol is something the people themselves crafted. (laughs) If you made it and then consult with it for guidance, what does that say about you? It says you're so darkened in your understanding, you think the thing you manufactured is the one who's going to guide you through life. It doesn't make sense. And their diviner's wand informs them. You know what a diviner's wand is? A stick. Do you mean to tell me people would rather look to a stick for guidance than God? What's happened to them? Well, look what it says. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray. There comes a point, this is the worst thing that could happen, when God gives us what we crave. When God gives us over. If people crave a substitute for him, there comes a time when God gives us over to it and it has us. It becomes a kind of a spiritual bondage. It's a spirit of harlotry, which then keeps a person from even freely responding to light. You don't want to be given over. You don't want to. You want God and his light to invade every aspect of your being. You you want to be illumined by his light. You want to unquench and free up his spirit in you. You want to avoid a pattern of sin because if so, it's going to just deaden your understanding and cause you to think crazy just as if you're drunk and it could become a bondage, a habitual, a spiritual bondage, a spiritual harlotry. And so people today are more prone to consult tea leaves and tarot cards and palm reading and the alignment of the stars and believe in reincarnation and make uh, uh, petitions to the universe. I find now this is what uh, a lot of young people are referring. You, you, you have to, you have to, you have to uh, posit the existence of a force greater than you. But you don't want to embrace the biblical record of a creator God. So instead you defer to this term. I hope, may the universe be with you today. May the universe give you your heart's desire. What the heck is that? The Dagon universe is what the creator spoke into existence in the power of his word. What is it about us that cause us to perform some intellectual lobotomy and uh, rid ourselves of the obvious presence of a creator and instead worship 
the inanimate universe. I'll tell you what it is. The universe makes no requirements upon us, sets no bounds. But God does. He says, be holy because I'm holy. And we prefer darkness because our deeds are evil. As with ancient Israel, so too with modern-day America. The text goes on. I'm going to skip to verse 15 here. Uh, Though you, Israel, play the harlot, look at this. Don't let Judah become guilty. What's God saying? At that point, the, uh, the tribes of Israel were divided. We spoke about this. The ten northern tribes were called Israel. The two southern tribes were called Judah. Israel was really going astray. Uh, God was um, giving Judah in the south a chance. Hence the appeal, uh, Judah, uh, don't become guilty like the northern tribes. Also, don't go to Gilgal. What's that? <sighs> when after 430 years of bondage, God graciously delivered the ancient Israelites from from bondage and brought them into the place of promise and they crossed the Jordan River. Joshua set up a monument, a memorial to God at a place called Gilgal where they celebrate God's gracious deliverance. But now when Hosea wrote, Gilgal became a center of idolatry. And that's why uh, the text is saying, don't go there and don't go up to Beit Aven, See, it says Beth Aven. It's pronounced Beit, house of Aven. You know what Aven means? Deceit. There is no such place in the Bible. I challenge you. Uh, search for the geographical location of Beth Aven, Beit Aven. You're not going to find it. You know why? It's a clever takeoff on a real place called Beit El, Bethel which means house of God. The writer is sarcastically saying, you made the house of God a house of deceit. Don't go up there. You think your token religious sacrifices, even at Beit El, will appease God? No, to him you've made it Beit Aven. It's not the house of God. It's the house of deceit. The text goes on in verse 16. To say, since Israel is stubborn like a stubborn heifer, can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? So, a lamb in a large field is needy for the provision and protection of a good shepherd. What God is saying is, I long to be the good shepherd you need. I long to set boundaries for you, to protect you from predators, just like you're a lamb in an open field. But you're acting like a stubborn cow. And therefore, I cannot be the good shepherd I long to be for you. That's what he's saying. And verse 17, uh, Ephraim is how you pronounce it, but Ephraim is okay for you Texans. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Remember I told you Ephraim represents all of the uh, northern tribes. Ephraim was the largest of the northern tribes. Leave him alone. Listen, the most scary words in the Bible when God says, leave him alone. Let them go their direction. Don't interfere. You don't want, you want God messing you up when you go astray. You want God intensely involved in your life. You don't want him going away. And then, uh, 
verse 19 says, the wind wraps them in its wings. They'll be ashamed because of their sacrifices. It's a way of saying, uh, God is going to blow Israel away. That's what it's saying. God will blow Israel away until the time when they are so ashamed that they uh, respond and confess their sin. That has not yet happened. It one day will. The totality of Scripture tells us that. But when Hosea wrote this, Israel was still very much in her sin. Now, folks, uh, one of the main points in this chapter is that the absence of the knowledge of God brings destruction, decay, and deterioration to a society. Welcome to modern-day America. Here's the diagnosis. The absence of the knowledge of God. That's the main theme in this chapter. What can we do? We can interfere, slow down the deterioration of American society by being more intent on bringing the knowledge of God to the people around us. That's the mission. No, that's the great commission. We've been committed with this great mission to bring the knowledge of God to people around us. Whatever other messages, listen, I got a neighbor next door, and the neighbor has way too many cars. As a result, I don't know, family members have it or visitors, who knows what. So they parked one of the cars very inconveniently, so close to my driveway. When I pull in, I got to make, like, make a wide turn. All right, look, it's not the biggest thing in the world. It only bothers me every single day. <laughs> every day. In fact, I'm a bad guy. The other day, I went out with a blower to blow the leaves, and I, never mind. <laughs> so, so nobody is perfect. And then I, I thought to myself, you know, they got room over there, park it over there in your place, for crying out loud. As soon as I get a chance to give them that message, I'm going to do it. And then I realized, uh, as I was reading what I shared with you tonight, don't do that, bozo. Because ah. you may succeed in getting him to move the car and getting them to be so turned off and offended by you, you forfeit an opportunity to share the message to which you have been entrusted. It's not make my life easier by moving your stinking car. That's not the Great Commission. No, I didn't say we should be doormats and never assertively speak up. I didn't say that. But all too often, it's about something as stupid as they park their car in the wrong place. When? Their very lives are at stake. Because just as God summoned Israel to give an account, he will summon my neighbors. What's going to be their defense? Now, look, I know this is very uh, uncomfortable and an un an appetizing topic, the impending wrath of God. But I did not write this chapter. Uh, uh, God did. It's, it's coming, and we have to help people be ready for it. What is people's only defense against the wrath of God? Uh, 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 folks, it's Christ alone. Just as I am without one plea, but that your son's blood was shed for me. 
We've got to help people have that defense because none of them will work. I was baptized. Not a good defense. I give money to the poor. Not a good defense. I'm a member of a Baptist church. Not a good defense. But what if Jesus is in the courtroom at this day when we stand to give an account to the judge of all the universe, almighty God, and he says to us, here is a recitation of your sins. How do you plea? And before we have a chance, the Lord Jesus, our advocate, advocates for us in the fashion of a defense attorney. And he steps up and he says, Father, here's the plea we enter on behalf of the accused. Not guilty. And the father says, on what basis? Father, that person put confidence in my shed blood for their sin. And the father says, case dismissed. That's the only way we can hear it. Now, let me close with a story to illustrate this. Now, if you were in our Bible study on Sunday, I apologize to you because I shared this then. I just think it fits it fits again. It's a story about travelers in uh, bygone days here in America making their way across the plains, going westward in covered wagons pulled by oxen. One day they were horrified by what they saw. They saw a line of smoke and fire coming across the prairie grass rapidly in their direction from the west. It stretched for miles in the dry prairie. It was burning the fire was coming to them. One of the men got this brilliant idea, however. He told everyone to dismount, abandon the wagons, and set fire deliberately, said he, to the prairie grass behind you. And then when the space was burned over, he told them, now take up a stand on that place. Move back upon the grass that had been burned. And as the flames continued to roar towards them from the west, a little girl cried out. She was terrified. She said, are you sure we won't be burned up? And the man said, don't be afraid. The flames can't reach us here because we are standing where the fire has already burned. Do you see what I'm getting at? When you place yourself by faith into relationship with Almighty God. When you move past information about him and have an experiential personal knowledge of him as Savior. You're standing where you cannot be burned because the fire has already burned. It's when Jesus said to the Father, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was the consuming fire of God's wrath upon innocent Jesus who took upon him the guilt of our sin. When you stand by faith in Jesus, you're standing where the fire has already burned and you are eternally safe. That's the only message that can save a person from the impending wrath of God. That's the message that we are principally and primarily entrusted with. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is circumference. The core of our being is to help people enter into the experiential knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, it's been a while since I took the opportunity to share those 40 words with anyone. You know why? I've gotten distracted by life. 
You know, I got to blow my leaves. Oh, look, it looks like I need air in that tire. You know, I got an appointment uh, with the doctor. Good things. Stuff. The stuff of life has distracted me. I haven't lost interest in evangelism. I know people need to know Jesus in order to be saved, but I forgot my mission. Every once in a while, I think my mission is just to manage the stuff of life. <laughs> That's all. Just to get up and manage the stuff of life. Pay the electricity bill, you know, paint this, do that, go to the dentist, who knows what. And sometimes even church work. Can you believe this? As a minister, I confess to you, sometimes church work uh, gets me distracted from opportunities to help people come to know Jesus in a personal way. In fact, sometimes church can be the worst distraction from the Great Commission because we could think we're doing God's work by being so enveloped in church work, we're of no value to our next-door neighbor. I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching at me. Do me a favor. Pray that I would take the chance to share these 40 words with at least one person this next week. And I will do the same for you. Let's do that. Let's just pray. Oh, God, we know you. Open our eyes that we may see the fields white for harvest. That's our mission. So, Lord Jesus, we bow before you gladly. We don't worship a stick. We don't worship an idol fashioned with our own hands. We don't bow before things that cannot hear or see or take care of us. We look to you, good shepherd. And we're so grateful to confess we're needy lambs in an open field. And we welcome your shepherding. We need you to set bounds. We need you to provide. And we need you to protect. Oh, God in heaven. Thank you so much for offering that to us. Help us to remain so intensely dependent upon you and none other that we allow you to be our good shepherd. And, oh God, thank you for the mission field, which is the barbershop, the grocery store, the neighborhood, the school, the workplace. Send us out, oh God, with a renewed vigor to help people be introduced to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ who came to save us from the wrath to come. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.